The Advice Show is sponsored by Invesco. Today's professional investors are overloaded with more information than ever. At Invesco, we help professional investors see the possibilities ahead by cutting through the noise to the ideas that matter. Visit Invesco.com to see how. Invesco. Let's advance together. Capital at risk. Hello and welcome to The Advice Show. From advising clients to practice management, this podcast will give you UK and global insights into the financial planning profession. I'm Nicola Blackburn, your host and a reporter at New Model Advisor. And today I'm very happy to be joined by Ashley Claxton, who is Head of Responsible Investment at Royal London Asset Management. So Ashley, thank you very much for coming back to a CityWire podcast. (laughs) Thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's great. We're really happy to have you. And how are you doing today? Really good. It's nice and sunny here in Bedfordshire. So it's a good day today. Oh, you're you're out, out of the city. I'm slightly out of the city. Yeah, I still commutable into the city, about an hour into the city. But yeah, a little bit on the outer limits, outside the M25. Perfect. Perfect. Lovely, lovely, lovely. Um, Good stuff. Well, Ashley, so um, part of kind of the reason, you know, we we wanted to have you on is to sort of do a bit of a deep dive into green bonds. Um, This is something that I have seen you speak about recently, Um, but it's also, you know, an area, I think, in the sort of ESG sphere that doesn't get as much attention. I wanted to sort of kickstart by asking you um, what you think makes a bond green. You know, there are different sort of types of green bonds, and I think different people have different ideas about what it is. So what, what do you think? Yeah, really actually good question. It sounds like a simple question, but that's actually not a simple question. Um, <laughs> Sorry. There's a number of ways you can... No, it's good. I mean, there's a number of ways you can talk about green bonds. Now, there's absolutely a market for green labeled bonds. So we're seeing a lot of these these days where companies will issue a bond to raise capital um, and they will get some, a green label on it. Um, so often... Um, they're seeking to finance some sort of new project or raise capital to do some sort of green initiative, maybe install LED lighting or a new piece of infrastructure. Um, or sometimes it's to raise general revenues, but they make some commitments around sustainability on that. So there's a, a kind of growing market for green bonds. Um, they, the market is quite big in Europe. It's growing in the UK. I've just seen a, a new issue in, in pound sterling today that's come through um, and also actually a number of years ago um, increasing in China. So um, a green bond, I suppose, often is a labeled, it's got a label to it or a name to it. It's a specific bond trying to raise raise capital for green projects. But as I'm sure we'll get on to talk about, um, you know, there's other ways you can kind of get access to green assets that aren't necessarily in green labeled bonds. Yeah. Okay. That's really, that's really interesting. Thank you. And I mean, I was also hoping you could sort of paint a picture from your view for us about sort of the health, I suppose, of the green bond market. What do you think it looks like and where could investors find opportunities in that market at the moment, do you think? Yeah, so I think it's still really nascent market, particularly in the UK and in sterling um, issuance. It's a bit more developed, as I said, in Europe, in euros. Um, But... um, 
what's the health of it? I think it's pretty good. I mean, I think we're seeing more new issuances come from companies. Companies can tend to be able to raise capital cheaper. So it's cheaper for the companies because there's quite a bit of demand for everything green and sustainable these days. But what that means for us as investors is they actually tend to be a little bit more expensive um, for us. So the state of the market, I think it's growing. It's still very new. And I think when you've got a new market for things, um, there's still quite a lot of experimentation going on. So I think green bonds can vary very in quality quite a bit. Um, you can have deep green bonds that are really good quality in terms of their sustainability credentials, or you can have um, kind of labeled green bonds where they're not really a green bond, but they might get the label because they do a little bit of reporting. Um, so I, my message really to the market is often you need to look under the hood, as I would say in Canada, or under the bonnet of a green bond and know what it's trying to do. Don't just necessarily um, rely on the label because you can get quite a bit of different quality in green bonds. Okay, okay. Yeah, something you, um, when I sort of heard you speak about this not too long ago, something um, you referenced, which was quite interesting, was this kind of lack of data, I think, in, in green bonds that's out there in terms of in terms of ESG, you know, considerations. Um, yeah, is that, do you think that's kind of a key limitation, really, with this market? I think, um, Green bonds probably have more, green bonds themselves probably have a bit more data around them than the general fixed income market does. So on green bonds, I think we're, we've got a decent amount of data. Um, but I think what's more interesting for us is actually, can we find bonds in the market that have green credentials, but that don't necessarily have a green label? Um, is kind of the more interesting area that we like to look at. So what we call them sort of unlabeled green bonds. Um, what we find with those is we can often get just as much greenness, if that's a word, um, for a better price for our customers and clients. Um, and in those kinds of bonds, there is less data um, and less reporting. So in a green bond, usually if you're issuing a green bond, you need to report quite a lot of information because investors like us will be wanting to know how is that Great, how's that bond performing from a sustainability perspective? Um, in the unlabeled sort of green bond market where we like to look for opportunities, um, it's a, it, that data is not necessarily as readily available or you really need to dig for it. You need to go speak to management or you need to go to company's house and you need to really do your homework to dig out the data. And I guess that's where we like to specialize. We like to kind of look for the types of things that maybe aren't as well talked about. They might not be off benchmark. They might not be labeled, but we think that's where we can extract value because we can go and do the hard work to go out and find those kind of interesting gems that we can invest in. Yeah. Oh, that's really, that's really interesting. Okay. And could you, um, you know, think of an example off the top of your head of, of maybe the holdings of an unlabeled green bond? I mean, what might that look like? Yeah. I mean, we, there was a great example. I'm not sure if the bond is still trading, but there was a great example of Anglian Water, um, a water U, UK water company. Um, you know, they issued a green bond and the green bond from an investment perspective was more expensive than its sort of general fixed income um, bonds. Um, and we kind of looked at this and we thought, well, that's interesting. It's got the green label on it. But when you actually peel back the layers, what you found is actually the um, assets or the 
activity that the green bond was going to fund it was going into general treasury so it wasn't ring fenced to a particular project it was loosely targeted at doing some green activities whether it was sort of energy efficiency or um, energy capture um, but it wasn't actually ring fenced to those projects so what we found this is quite interesting for us because we we actually just bought the unlabeled anglian water bond which anglian water was doing the same activity whether it was within the green bond or not and we can get access basically we can get access to all that green activity but for a cheap for a less expensive price for for our end clients and so it's that's sort of an example where um you know you have to kind of do your homework and peel back of some of the layers to understand what it is exactly that you're financing there are other green bonds out there where that are ring fenced and secured on specific green assets where you know it'd be you know more i guess um interesting to us to go and actively fund that activity but where you had two bonds both going into general treasury both kind of funding the same company assets generally we kind of felt well we can actually just buy the non-labeled green bond for our clients currently the use of those names is not regulated um it might become regulated we can talk about that in a minute um so there's a bit of a wild west out there and because sustainable investing has become so commercial i mean i've been in the industry for 15 years um but i would say and we always knew this moment was coming with you know <laughs> sustainable and responsive investing we know that the world's going to get there but it's taken them you know sort of 14 13 and a half years of my career to get there um but kind of about 18 months ago it's really really hit the mainstream so that's a wonderful thing but now that it's highly commercial it does mean there's lots of new product coming to market. There's lots of new entrants. There's lots of experimentation. Um, so when you are going out looking for funds, um, it's confusing. And I totally mm -hmm. feel for advisors out there. It's a difficult market at the moment. Um, so what we do say is similar to green bonds, which is do your homework. Look at what the fund's actually trying to achieve. Don't fixate too much on the name or the label around it. Um, really just try and understand what it's trying to do um under the under the kind of hood yeah 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 that's really interesting thank you and um just to kind of move back to bond specifically for a bit before we sort of move on um so if advisors or an investor is looking at um you know a recent bond that's come out and uh in its label or in its you know in its sort of <laughs> mission its sustainability or its impact promises are quite uh quite driven do you think um, advisors or investors can be confident that it will kind of reach uh, its goals uh, in terms of ESG or sustainability? So that I think it's a really good question. I think the way you try and uh, green bonds can have credibility is there's a few things. First is to be really transparent on what they're funding. So we talked about that a little bit. Is it a specific asset? Is it a specific project? What is that project? What's the time frame? What are the deliverables you're expecting to see out of it? Um, make sure that the what you're finding financing is additional so by that so additionality is a kind of important concept in green bonds and even impact investing actually which is would the company have funded it anyways or is this genuinely going to be adding new capital that wouldn't have otherwise been available or you could say maybe it's funding capital at a better cost um, to do new activities that wouldn't have got done otherwise. I think that's a really kind of important test. 
And then the final thing is reporting. So you never really know when you're funding it, whether they're going to be able to achieve everything they do, but that's no different than an equity or a bond in any other kind of context. Um, but what we tend to ask for with green bonds is um, give us some really good reporting. So tell us every year, um, what are your milestones? Have you achieved them? Um, and, and so that we can kind of have some visibility of what our money's been used for. So I think from that perspective, yeah, you don't always know what you're going to get, but we try with green bonds particularly have a few of these um, ring fencing additionality and reporting. Today's professional investors are overloaded with more information than ever, from digesting market and economic data to probing new trends and ideas. At Invesco, we help professional investors see the possibilities ahead by cutting through the noise to the ideas that matter. With a proven past and an eye on the future, we bring the latest thought-provoking investment analysis and diverse ideas directly to professional investors. Visit Invesco.com to see how. Invesco, let's advance together. Capital at risk. Do you think um, covenants and credit ratings have a bit of a role to play here too, um, given that I suppose historically they haven't necessarily been used when applied to sort of ESG and sustainability considerations? Yeah, Covenants, definitely. I think that's something that we at Royal London um, really focus on. Um, not necessarily my expertise, but we have a credit research team um, who are absolute experts at covenants. And they are looking at the very long legal documents, kind of explaining <laughs> all of the kind of covenants around how use of proceeds and what the company can do and can't do. And that is really our specialism. Um, and I think you've not seen a lot of work, stuff happening around green covenants or covenants around green activities, but I think that is probably increasingly where it will go, particularly if it's the kind of financing where it's not a ring-fenced asset. It's not like, um, I don't know, a wind turbine or a you know electricity distribution line or something like that. It's not an asset, but you wanted some certainty over how the company might use that money. You can see a place for putting in things like green covenants. So I think that's really important on credit ratings i suppose i'm less convinced um the reason being it i'm not a credit expert by any stretch of the imagination but um credit rating agencies are doing a really specific thing it's a risk of default it's trying to understand the risk of default and in most cases esg or green issues don't necessarily they're not necessarily so bad that they will make the company default so it's almost too high of a hurdle. Um, so I would say with ratings that to us, we, we look at them, we use them, but to us, it's just one other piece of information. It's the risk of default. It's not the risk, the ability to recover your assets. It doesn't address any other kind of pricing issues or things like that. So I'm less convinced, I guess, on the, on the credit ratings and more quite interested in the, the kind of covenant aspect, I would say. But I do think the credit rating agencies are starting to invest a lot more in ESG. So um, without going into too much detail, but the sort of ESG or environmental, social and governance as a kind of, dare I say, movement or trend um, has really come out of the equity space, as you know, probably Nicola, and trying to apply it to fixed income is very different, as we've sort of talked about a little bit, the nuance really matters. And I've been really disappointed in the sense that we're so focused, we have such a good kind of history and credit at Roland, and it's been really disappointing trying to get ESG ratings 
providers or data providers to apply them to fixed income because they get it wrong all the time. Um, and I was hoping that the credit rating agencies, because they know the industry so or the asset class so well, I was hoping that they would be doing better than they are. And I mm -hmm. think um, they are investing, but I they're not quite up to scratch, I would say, from an ESG perspective. Yeah. We still have to do most of the work in-house. I see. Okay. What's what's missing? Is it just the data? And what do you think? Yeah, um, there is a lot of data missing. So um, it's easy to fix it on data. Um, a lot of um, fixed income issuers are private companies. So they many, many of them don't have a listed equity parent. And because the most of the focus and the regulation has been on listed equities generally in response investing, if you're a private company or you're an a SPV, so a special purpose vehicle, or, um, you know, like a public-private finance partnership, like a hospital trust or something like that, that might issue some debt. I mean, none of that. There's no, there's just very little data coming out of companies like that. Um, so that's an issue. I would say there's a huge issue with data providers not understanding fixed income. And I guess that's, again, where I would want the fixed income rating agencies to step up a little bit. Um, simple things like mismapping a subsidiary bond to the wrong parent or to a parent where it doesn't make sense that they inherit their ESG data. You know, so you've got like Berkshire Hathaway, big listed equity company, everyone knows them, like loads of ESG risks, but they're a huge conglomerate, right, of all sorts of investments. Um, but some of, but they underneath their corporate structure they issue quite a lot of bonds but in very specific sectors but what you'll find is mm. the bonds under Berkshire Hathaway really far down the chain tend to just inherit the parent company's data and it's just wrong or inaccurate so it's a mix of like poor data um it's the asset class is very different it it matters where you sit in the capital structure so you know if you have um an unsecured bond then in a company that has a listed equity parent then it's probably sensible you can just rely on listed equity parent data but if you have a um, ring fence secured asset backed bond um, sometimes listed parent is irrelevant yeah <laughs> so it really matters and it matters where you sit in the capital structure and and whether or not you know you're going to take on um, you know, your your chances of default or your chance of recovering your assets really matters in the kind of structure that you're financing as well. Yeah. Is it how, so for example, from Royal London's perspective, you know, how as an asset manager do you mitigate, how do you kind of cross that hurdle of, of okay, you know, we want to form this, this bond fund um, mm. and, you know, we want to report on ESG, but it's hard. <laughs> It's hard. It's really hard. So um, you just have to start small. So we um, we kind of apply the 80-20 rule. We kind of spend 80% of our energy on sort of 20% of the market that other people aren't looking at. Um, so those kind of PFIs, you know, private finance deals or, or um, private companies, etc., asset-backed securities. Um so we have a lot of in we spend a lot of our in-house resource on those ones and the ones where there is a bit of data then um you know we can we spend less of our time on those ones um i think you just have to start small i think we have to acknowledge that you know um we have to build the data up over time i mean when we first started looking at carbon data for example in some of our sterling credit funds 
the coverage through a standard kind of third-party provider was about 50 to 60% of our securities, which doesn't give you a very good picture when you sort of give the fund manager a set of data and you say, well, half of the data is missing. They, they kind of just <laughs> scratch their heads and say, well, this isn't very useful for me. <laughs> um, but we have to start somewhere. But what we've done is what we've started to build up our own data set. So we actually don't rely on wholly on the third parties. We've actually gone out and found the carbon data by hard work trolling through companies' house or thinking about, you know, um, you have social housing is a big sector that we invest in, you know, trying to think about a model for what is the carbon, likely average carbon footprint for the average social housing provider um, and kind of coming up with models ourselves to fill the gaps. And by doing that, we've got our coverage in most of our sterling credit funds from sort of 60% up to I think we're about 89, 95% or so in terms of AUM. So a lot of hard work, but you can get there. <laughs> that does sound like a lot of hard work. <laughs> yeah. But hopefully yeah. not for too much longer, you know. <laughs> a few more yeah, years. Yeah, I think and... more companies more companies are now starting to disclose. We obviously engage as a fixed income um, investor. We also reach out to the companies we invest in. We ask them to disclose more information. We've been working with the social housing um, sector and government particularly around trying to get um, kind of best practice ESG environmental social and governance reporting for the social housing sector where we're big financers of social housing debt um, but they're they're obviously st uh, stuck for resources so we're trying to find a way that we can get the information we need that's sensible for them and, and cost effective for them to produce so there are things we can do um, but it, it, it does take a bit of hard work to get the data. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thanks, Ashley. That's really interesting. Um, I was hoping to move on now, yeah, I suppose a bit more broadly to Royal London's uh, approach when it comes to ESG. So uh, Royal London have recently moved £25 billion, I think it was, of investors' money yeah. to lower carbon investments. Um, yeah, which was, was really, really um, interesting and great to see. Um, I wanted to ask, when you're kind of making these changes to uh, clients' investments, um, and presumably, you know, we're going to see a lot more of these kind of big uh, actions in the market, um, are there kind of considerations that you have to have in terms of minimising risk uh, when it comes to perhaps the client's um, dividends that they receive, things like that, that you have to consider? And, and yeah, so what are potential risks and how would you mitigate those? Absolutely. So there's definitely, the, the customer has to be at the heart of it. And so what you're referring to is we moved um, all of our passive equity money uh, over to lower carbon tilted quantitative funds. Um, so in doing that, we had to change the funds. So we had to ch go to the FCA, we changed prospectuses, we reapplied, and we asked customers to vote on it. So it was very transparent, very open, um, and um, absolutely customers need to have do this with their eyes open and, and kind of be in the, um, I guess, the driver's seat or the passenger seat with you to, to be supporting you along the way. And if customers don't want that outcome for themselves, they absolutely have the option of, of going elsewhere or moving us moving them into a different fund. So that's what we did. We moved all of our passive money into low carbon tilted funds. So now we will not be in the future running market weight benchmarked funds. That's a really big statement to the market. 
we've done that because we don't think market weight passive considers climate change. Um, all it basically does is the bigger the company is, the more money that you get. And that in a world of post-Glasgow, post-COP26, um, you know, just funding companies for the sake of the fact that they happen to be up big already doesn't make sense to us. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've, we've changed that to, to have a, fa- a kind of carbon tilt. Um, and it, it is really important. So that was a really strategic change that we made. And that also flowed through to all of our pension customers on the Royal London group side who are in m- most of our pension products. Um, for other funds, the change is probably going to be a bit more subtle. So for other funds, like maybe in our equity income book, for example, you know, it's really about speaking to the fund managers and working with the fund managers to get them the best possible information on climate risks so that they can be thinking about that every time they're making a trade. And also to, um, you know, get, um, Similar, we've done a bunch of work with our Sterling Credit team where we looked at um, the utility sector and the role of climate risk within the utility sector. And that led them to decide to switch many of their bonds out of gas distribution into electricity distribution. And we did that about two years ago. Um, And we did it because we felt like gas distribution, you know, had higher risk of stranding stranded assets. And actually the bonds traded the same. They were both regulated, highly regulated, they were trading about the same, but we felt one had more of a risk than the other. So we tra- traded a lot of our clients' money into the electricity ones. And just to wrap up, something else I wanted to quickly ask you about uh, was diversity, which is obviously a huge part of the S and the G side of ESG. Um, and uh, you have recently spoken about uh, gender representation in the boardroom and how you know companies reporting on their gender diversity might be a little bit more complex than that. Um, I was just hoping you could kind of touch on your, your thoughts on that issue. Yeah, I think um, diversity is really important, that it's not just about gender. Gender is absolutely essential, but we're also starting to talk about ethnic diversity and cognitive diversity, as well as diversity of background and experience. Um, So for us, it's really about trying to also make sure that the pipeline of talent is correct. So you cannot get well-trained board directors if you don't have a really good diverse set of executive pipeline coming up um, into the board. So it's really key for us to start engaging with companies about what they're doing around developing their talent and making sure their talent is diverse. Great. That's great to hear. And, and hopefully we'll just we'll hear that more and more uh, across the market. Um, Ashley, it's been fantastic to have you. Um, and thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Um, if you want to get in contact with us, we're on Twitter at Citywide New Model Advisor. And we look forward to hearing from you in the next episode. Thanks very much, everyone. The Advice Show is sponsored by Invesco. Today's professional investors are overloaded with more information than ever. At Invesco, we help professional investors see the possibilities ahead by cutting through the noise to the ideas that matter. Visit Invesco.com to see how. Invesco. Let's advance together. Capital at risk.